0: It's, it's a real pleasure to be here this morning, um, not only as, uh, as the one who brings the word, but I, I work very closely with Paul on a regular basis, particularly over the last few months as we've been, as our churches have been walking together in the process of, of leaving the RCA and joining the PCA. Um, it's been a real joy to do that not by ourselves, and it brings, I know not only myself, but our congregation at First Church, joy and comfort and peace and excitement to know that we're walking that road uh, with you as well. And so uh, I bring a welcome from our brothers and sisters at First Reformed Church, and we're very uh, very thankful to be here this morning with you. Our scripture reading for this morning does come from Colossians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 15 and reading through verse 23. And before we read the text, it's always good for us to pray the Lord will uh, open our eyes to see it. So let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I'm thankful to be here with my brothers and sisters at Missio Day this morning. And um, we pray, Lord, that as we turn to your word, that as we confess together that it is inerrant and inspired and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, we we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to it. Unstop our ears that we may hear it and soften our hearts. Uh, We don't want to be with hearts that are um, like the first three soils in the parable. We don't want to have hard hearts. We don't want to have hearts that are choked out by money or entertainment or other interests. Lord, we want, it, we want to be fertile soil. We know that you control that. We pray that you would soften our hearts to receive the seed of your word and that it would, it would bear fruit in abundance. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be present here as we study your word together. We pray that as he inspired the word, that he would also put it into our hearts, that he also would help us to understand it and communicate it to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Uh, This is Paul speaking about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It's helpful whenever we're studying the scriptures to have a better understanding of the context of what we're reading. And so the the letter to the Colossians is a letter of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul was responding to a visit he's received. The, the, the church in Colossae was a rather small church. It was uh, in Colossae, which had at one time had been a very large and important city, but now was, was far less significant. It was kind of an out-of-the-way, has-been town. And it was pastored. This church was pastored by a man named Epaphras. Paul had most likely never visited or seen the church in Colossae, but it was pastored by a man named Epaphras, who appears to have heard the gospel from Paul and believed, went back home to Colossae, planted the church in Colossae, and was pastoring this church. But as was uh, very frequently happening in in those days, false teachers had come into the church in Colossae, and they began to challenge Epaphras's authority and challenge his teaching. And they were teaching that uh, you, you need Christ to be saved, yes, but you also need to be. You also need to follow the dietary restrictions. You also need to keep the Sabbaths and keep the festivals and follow the law of Moses. You need Christ plus all these other things as well. So that was the first danger that Epaphras brought to Paul's attention. Epaphras traveled about 1,500 miles to Rome where Paul was in prison to bring him this news. And he also brought another concern. The second concern was that many of the Colossians had come out of pagan backgrounds they come out of hedonistic backgrounds. they come out of backgrounds with debauchery and great sinfulness. And so the, the temptation was always there for these people who'd come out of that lifestyle to go back. Uh, to go back and share in it with their families and share it in it with their friends and share it with their neighbors again. You've got to remember that being a Christian in... in uh, the first century, you were a distinct minority, and often you were considered to be very odd, even called an atheist because you refused to worship the gods of the Roman Empire. And so Epaphras brings these two concerns to Paul. So Paul writes the letter to the Colossians, and in writing the letter to the Colossians, Paul is is trying to argue to the Colossians, make the point to the Colossians, why not desert Christ? Why not act to Christ with all the, the forms and functions of the law? And why not desert Christ for hedonism, for paganism, for their old lives? Why is Christ worthy of being held on to no matter what the circumstances? And so here is Paul's, I believe, the very heart of Paul's argument. One I find to be incredibly convincing. His argument is that Christ is supreme. Supreme in three distinct ways, I think, this morning. Supreme in His being, supreme in His relationship, and supreme in His work of reconciliation. And we start in verse 15 with His supremacy of being. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The Westminster Catechism says that God is a spirit That God is invisible. He cannot be seen. It is is not as though God has a body like you and I. That He can be touched and felt and seen. He is a spirit. He is invisible. He is eternal and always present. But but you cannot touch Him or or see Him. And God wanted it to remain that way. He commands very clearly in the Old Testament that you are to make no image of Him in any form or function. He, He says in Deuteronomy, Four verses, fifteen and sixteen. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, so you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on the earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And the image of deity was not to be depicted in any way, shape, or form. You weren't to make objects out of clay or out of gold or or with paints on a canvas or anything of that sort. God was not to be displayed. Why? Well, Why? Well, I think it's very obvious if you think about it long enough. How could you do justice to a God who is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous and eternal and just and merciful and gracious and loving and who has all the power of judgment and all the power of grace and how could you do justice to that God with a lump of clay or on a canvas or with gold or silver, you, you cannot properly display all of God's greatness in any image. And so to do so would be an injustice to God's character. It would be an injustice to His nature. And so God demands that nothing be made which is made to represent Him. It's called idolatry. But Paul comes along and he says in verse 15, He is the image of the in visible God what you could never do with clay or gold or silver or paint Christ does he is the image of the invisible God when you look at Christ you are able to see all of God's grace when you look at Christ you're able to see all of God's holiness when you look at Christ you're able to see all of his righteousness all of his justice all of his goodness all of his mercy christ embodies the fullness of the image of god when you look at christ you are looking at god so often this is what the cults among other things get wrong they see christ as part of the image of god as as an imperfect image of god but far from it far be it from us to think that way but christ is the Image of God. Anything less would be idolatry. If He was anything less than the fullness of the image of God, worshiping Him would be absolute foolishness. But He is the image of the invisible God, the fulfillment of the second commandment. And it's like Calvin says: in Christ alone, that God, who is otherwise invisible, is manifested to us. And as the author of the Hebrews says, the Sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, the exact representation of his being. Well, it isn't just these, the image of the invisible God. Verse 14 says that he is the firstborn of all creation. I had a Jehovah's witness come by my house uh, this past, well, it might have been two or three weeks ago now, and we got into discussion about who is Christ, and she was, she was dead set that Christ is created, that he is a made being that he is is less than God and part of the reason for her arguing that was, she was saying well it says that he is the firstborn he is a created being I said no that's not what Paul is meaning to communicate by saying that he is the firstborn it is as though God the Father is the holder and the owner of all things hands over all things to Christ as a king hands all things over to his heir. That makes sense? It, it is not as though Paul is saying that Christ is created. How could a created being do justice to the fullness of the glory of God? It's impossible. But Paul is saying that Christ receives all things from his Father as an heir receives all things from the King before him. And so here it is that Christ owns Everything. He is king over everything. He is king over the furthest flung galaxies, and he is king over you and I. He is particularly king over his church, but he is generally king over all of creation. And so we get back to that very first thing we started with. Paul is answering the question why not desert Christ? why not leave him for the paganism why not leave him for popularity or acceptance why not leave him and add to him with all these other different things well how can you add to god how can you add to god if you have god what more can you possibly need and if he owns all things why would i go looking elsewhere for those things but it is that christ is supreme And He is supreme in His being. And when you have the supreme being available to you, you have no need or lack. And so Paul is answering again the question here, why not desert Christ because He is supreme? And he goes on in verse 16 to speak more about this supremacy. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Sometimes we have this problem in modern evangelicalism and we, we only see God the Father in the Old Testament. And we don't think about Jesus the Son until the New Testament. And it's crippling to our understanding of who Christ is to think that way. Because here, we remember in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does Paul say? For by him, that is, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. When you get out your, when you get out your telescope and you look at the furthest galaxy you can see, Christ made it and it was made through Him. And if you were to get out the strongest microscope you could, you could get and look at the most minute particles you can possibly see, it would be that Christ made those as well. And if you were to look at a sunset you were to see the design and the creation of Christ. And if you were to look at the beasts of the field or the fish of the sea or the birds of the air or the plants or the trees or the depths of the seas or the the heights of the heavens, whatever it is that you are to look at, you are looking at the creation of Christ. And if you are to look at yourself, you look at the creation of Christ. If you were to consider all the microscopic things within the human ear that have to work together to be able to hear, you see the intricate design of Christ. And the same goes with the human eye, all that has to go on inside the eye in order for us to see. You see the design of Christ. All that is, is because of Christ. But not only things visible, but things invisible. One of the teachings of these false teachers was that the Colossians were actually supposed to worship the, the quote throne angels. Because the throne angels were in the presence of God, and we are too, we are too sinful. Significant, to be able to worship God directly. We worship the throne angels, and then the throne angels worship for us. But Paul says here, uh, he's created all things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, those are classes of angels as we're being taught by the false teachers. But why would you worship the creation when the Creator is offered to you? There is a distinct difference between the potter and his clay. And there is a distinct difference between the creator and the creation. Angels, no matter how great, glorious, or grand they may be, fall in the creation category. Only God, only the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fall into the creator category. So Paul speaks on uh, no uncertain terms that nothing is to be worshipped except for Christ, and it says all things were created through Him and for Him. Christ is supreme as the recipient of the glory of all things. Everything that is is for Christ's glory. The furthest galaxies were created to bring glory to Christ. The smallest particles were created to bring glory to christ the seasons were created to bring glory to christ all that is you and i and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the sunsets and the mountains and the mundane plains of kansas all of it is made to bring glory to christ supreme as the recipient of all things he is the purpose of creation and paul goes on As if he needs to, he goes on and says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things. Before there was, before there was a darkness hovering over the surface of the deep, before there was a galaxy or a particle or anything made, there was Christ. He is before all things things because he is not a thing he is God before there were throne angels before there was circumcision before there were idols of gold and stone Christ was and he is before all things supreme to them in his very being and then in him all things hold together It's incredible. In him all things hold together. The reason that day turns to night, turns to day, turns to night, is that Christ sustains the earth's rotation by his word every moment. And the reason that summer turns to fall, I hate to say it, turns to winter, turns to spring, turns to summer, turns to fall, is that Christ sustains the rotation and the orbit of the earth each and every single day. And the reason that we always go down and that gravity always works is because He sustains the laws of nature every single day. And the reason that your heart still beats and your mind still works and you have just taken another breath is because Christ sustains you every moment of your life. All that is, is because He not only created it, but because He permits it to continue to exist within His creation. And I don't care if you are the the most holy saint who has ever lived, or you are the most ardent atheist who ever lived. You are sustained every moment of your life, from your first to your last, by the Word of Christ. He sustains all things. But do you want to know what's Amazing to me, before Christ was incarnate in the person of Jesus, he sustained all things. And when he was conceived in just a few cells in his mother's womb, he sustained all things. And when he was laying in the manger, just an ordinary looking child, he was sustaining all things and as a small child, still sustaining all things. When he was starving and being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, sustaining all things. When he was being flogged and beaten beyond recognition, he sustained all things. Don't you think that if you were Christ, and if you were being beaten with a whip with glass and rock and iron on the end of it, beyond all human recognition, and then you were going to be hung on a cross, don't you think the temptation would have entered your mind to just say, forget it. This whole world that I'm sustaining right now can just be gone. But while on the cross, yet he still sustained all things and perhaps even more amazingly, while he was dead and in the tomb, he continued to sustain all things. That is the Christ that is the Christ that we worship. That is the Christ that we are to be in awe of. And then we move into verse 19. I know I skipped 18. We'll go back to it. Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The cults, whether they be the false teachers of, of Paul's day or whether they be the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses of our own, they have taught from time and time and time and time again, they have taught that there was a time when Christ was not, that He is a God, but not the God, that he, is, that he is a sub-creature to God, that He is glorious, but not the most glorious. But what does Paul say? For in Him all the fullness. Now, that's a little bit redundant, isn't it? All the, couldn't you just say, in Him the fullness of God? Sure, he could have, he could have said that. He said just all of God. He could have said that, but he said all the fullness. Do You get the idea here, right? Christ is not to be mistaken with some sort of angel creature. He's not to be mistaken with just some set of glorious sub-God. He is the God. The God. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. Do you remember? You're studying Exodus, so I hope you remember. Do you remember the glory cloud that led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness? It was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And it was the very presence of God. Do you remember the tabernacle? And do you remember the Ark of the Covenant that was carried with the people wherever they went, wandering around in circles in the wilderness for those 40 years? God's presence... Was represented by those objects, and it was the same with the temple. The temple, when it was built by Solomon, when when it was finished, the glory cloud filled the temple, representing God's glorious presence. But there is no more glory cloud, and there is no more ark. No matter what Indiana Jones says, there is no more ark. And if there was, they would have no power. And there is no more temple. Why? Because Christ is no longer present with his people in a cloud or in a temple or in a wooden box. But he is present with his people in the flesh. He is God who is with us. And God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ. In whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I was here just a little bit uh, before the service and joking about three years in Exodus. I said, well it's better than 40 years in Exodus and that's true. But there's a reason you study Exodus. How are you to understand the glory of Christ? How are you to understand what Paul is writing and speaking about with in the later parts of Colossians with Sabbaths and festivals and new moons and on and on and on and on? How are you to know how glorious it is that God is no longer present in a temple or an ark or a glory cloud, but in Christ? How are you to understand the full glory and supremacy of Christ unless you understand where the people of God had been and where they had come from and where we are now? You cannot understand how privileged you are as a New Testament believer in Christ until you understand where the people of God have come from in the past. And so praise the Lord that you spend time in Exodus because you understand this better than you otherwise would have and you understand the glory of understanding that Christ is the fullness of the presence and the being of God, not in a cloud, but in a person who is always with us. Well, that is the glory of Christ's being. And I think it is glorious. We can move on into the glory and the supremacy of Christ's relationship. Move back into verse 18. Of course, these things are not completely separate from one another. They are all interrelated, but it bears mentioning nonetheless. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. My head is the authority in my body my mind says hand go up, hand goes up. And if my mind says hand go down, hand goes down. And if my mind says walk, it walks. And if my mind says speak, it's my mouth speaks. My my body obeys the commands of my head. And when that doesn't happen, when there's something wrong in the body that doesn't obey the head, we call it a disease. A church which does not obey Christ is a diseased church, because He is the authority over the church. As my head is the authority over my body, so Christ is the authority over His body. And this is an important thing for us elders to keep in mind. We have authority in the church, but it is not ours in and of ourselves. It belongs to Christ. It is a delegated authority. And if, God forbid, one day one of your elders or myself was to fall into grave sin... That authority could be stripped from us because it does not belong to us. It belongs to Christ. Christ alone is the head of His church. We have no pope. We don't need popes. We have Christ. Christ is with us. He alone is the head and the king of His church. But He is also the ruler of all things. It says that He is the beginning. That word beginning in Greek is arche. It it can mean beginning or ruler or first citizen so to speak. Christ is the glorious one over all creation. Not only beginning chronologically but beginning as far as the first, the grandest, the glorious one. He is the ruler over all this creation generally and it says then as well that he is the firstborn from among the dead. This is not a chronological statement. There were others who had died and come back to life before Christ, right? let uh, talk about Elijah. Elijah raised the widow's son at Zarephath. And in 2 Kings, Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son. And Jesus Himself raised the widow's son at Nain and raised His good friend Lazarus. And they who were dead are now alive again. So Paul is not saying Jesus is the first one to be dead and alive again. He's saying Jesus is the first one to be dead, alive, and never die again. All the rest of those people died, rose, died. Christ Died, rose, ascended. No more dead, right? He's he's the first one to die and rise and never die again. He is victor over death and first born from among the dead. There's hope in that statement, isn't there? I just did a funeral on Friday. I did a funeral. I, I didn't know the woman. She was the mother of a of a man in my congregation and. Her pastor was in the hospital, and so I stepped in, and at this funeral, I don't care if I know the person or not, you preach the hope of the resurrection. that Jesus is the first-born from the dead, but he's not the lastborn from among the dead. Our hope is in Christ. It is by the power of His resurrection that we hope to one day live again. You now, we, we sing a lot about our souls, and the songs we sing this morning were beautiful. It says he purchased my soul with his blood. But you know, Jesus didn't just purchase my soul with his blood. He purchased my body with his blood as well. My hope isn't just that one day I can go to heaven. My hope is that one day when I'm in heaven, Jesus will say, okay, now it's time to go back and fetch those bodies again. And that that body which is laid in the ground in dishonor, sown powerless, will one day be raised in glory. And my body will one day be perfected as Christ's body is now. That is the hope, that Christ is the firstborn from on the dead and we will follow Him. And so Christ is supreme in His relationship to His people and to His church, and now He's supreme in His reconciliation as well. Verse 20 says, And through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by His blood, by the blood of His cross, reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. You'll recall back to the beginning of creation. God made all things, and everything was good. Even after the creation of Eve, women, very good, very good, but it didn't stay very good. It got to be quite bad in quite a hurry, because God had said, you can eat of any of these trees, but the tree in the middle, that's off limits. Eat it and die. It wasn't because the fruit was poison. It was because God wanted to make sure that Adam was obedient. That Adam knew that his authority in the garden was a delegated authority and that God was sovereign. Adam eats the fruit and plunges not only himself, but all of his descendants and the full creation into sin and distress. As Paul says elsewhere, the creation waits and groans under the weight of sin. And yet, here Paul writes of hope. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Paul is speaking about a general redemption here. Paul is speaking about hope of the creation in Christ. We know that Christ's church has a particular hope, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But the creation has a hope in Christ as well. That it wasn't just Adam who fell into sin, but the creation falls into sin. And it isn't just the church that Christ redeems with His cross, but it is the creation that Christ gives hope to. One day the creation will be restored. One day there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be, and there will be a perfection, and no longer will there be weeds or thistles, no longer will there be pain or mourning or tears, but the creation itself from the heavens to the earth will be entirely remade and perfect. Christ accomplishes that by his cross. But he accomplishes more specifically a redemption of his people. And we see that in verses 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul is speaking to the church here. He's not speaking to everyone. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to those who trust in Christ. And he says to them, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Do you think in these terms? Do you think of yourself and say, I was alienated from God. I was separated from God and the hostility came from me I was hostile towards God in my mind and Paul implies with the next line and doing evil deeds I was hostile in my mind towards God because I loved my evil deeds more than I loved God's righteousness That the hostility between me and God was my fault it was my problem. God is not the one who declared war on me, but I made myself an enemy of God with my sin. That is the story of every Christian. I don't care if you are converted in the womb, you are conceived in sin. And every Christian can rightfully say, I was an enemy of God. I was alienated from God. I was evil. I was wicked. And I was hostile to God before God changed my heart. That is the story of every Christian, and you must embrace that if you are to really embrace the Gospel. You cannot say, I was never had anything, I was never separated from God in any way. What need have you for Christ? If that is true of you. But no, He did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. Well then, here's the good news. But you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So here's the, the simple picture Paul paints. There's God on one side, and there's you on the other, and you are at war. This is a news flash. If you are at war with God, it's not going to end well for you. And so you are at war with God, and it becomes the mediator. The mediator is Christ, and the mediator is able to represent me to God because he is human, fully, completely human like I am. But he's also able to represent God to me because he is absolutely, totally God. And so he is the perfect go-between between between God and man because he fully identifies with both. And God says, sin deserves death. And Christ says, Father, you are right. Your holiness is so great that that sin does deserve death. And the Father says, but I've chosen some of them, and I want them, and so you are going to take death for them. And the son says, I will do it. And he does it. And so he takes his people, and in his infinite worth, he dies for them so that they don't have to die. Isn't that glorious? He makes peace between us and God in his physical body by his death, by the blood of his cross. Kelvin says, our happiness consists in our cleaving to God. On the other hand, there is nothing more miserable than to be alienated from Him. Do you believe that? There is nothing more miserable than being alienated from God. If you do not believe it now, one day you will know it's true. It is true. I want to put this in a story form perhaps, bring it home a bit. Uh, Late June or early July, and I was up in the city with your Paul and Kirk Kruger. We were up doing some ordination, credentials, transfer stuff. You know all that stuff you got to do when you're changing denominations and uh, just totally altering your life forever. You know, that's how it goes. And so we were up in the city. We were at uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church. And I was sitting in an alley between the two buildings they have there. And this man comes walking through, and his name was Miguel, and he owned a a cleaning company. He must not have been very busy because he had a lot of time to talk. And so he stops and he's just chit-chatting. And you know, there are some people who can just chit-chat forever. And I'm not one of those people, really. And so he's just talking to me about nothing. I'm thinking, come on, guy, move along, move, you know. But eventually, the Lord was, you know, working on me, teaching me I need to have more patience and see things more His way. Because eventually it comes out that I'm a pastor. Well, Miguel was very interested in me being a pastor. He wanted me to preach about two things more than I was. And of course, he has no idea what i ever preach on he wanted me to preach on the healing properties of organic apple cider vinegar (laughs) there you go check it out he also thought he also thought i should preach more on the wrath of god which turns me very ironic given the course of our conversation so miguel found i'm a pastor and he was catholic i think he was italian he was catholic and he begins treating me like I'm a priest. And he's trying to convince me in a way of why he's good enough for God. Well, my parents are old and they need help and so they live with me. I'm thinking, oh, that's good. Yeah, not many people do that. I have eight children, and I care for them, and I love them, and I work hard, and I don't drink, and I don't smoke, and I don't have tattoos, and I, and I do this, do that, and I try to do everything right. I, I've been married twice, but I only want to be married once. And he goes on and on and on and on and on into how good he is. And finally, I stop him, and I say, Miguel, are you a good person? Oof. When you ask a question like that, sometimes people aren't sure how to answer Because you could see in his face, all of a sudden, all these things he'd been basing his righteousness on felt a bit more hollow when he really thought about it. And I had a chance to ask him a couple questions. Have you ever told a lie? Yeah. Yeah, that's called lying. It makes you a liar. Have you ever looked at a woman who wasn't your wife uh, inappropriately? Oh, yeah. That's called lust. It makes you an adulterer. You were stolen or anything? anything. Yeah, we just kind of went through the, through the list, you know. And I said, Miguel, you, you might think you're better than most people. And he definitely did think he was better than most people. I said, you might think you're better than most, but you're a sinner. Sinners go to hell. And the look on his face had two things in it. The first was he was crushed. When you spent your entire life building a case that you're going to make to God based on how good you are, and it all comes crashing down in a moment with a guy you've never met, I think crushing makes sense. It's the destruction of pride. Pride crashed in about three minutes. But there was also a liberation in his face because deep down I think he knew it. I think he knew good and well that he wasn't good enough. Which is why he went on for 45 minutes trying to tell me how good he was. Because it just never seemed good enough. So then I had a chance to share with him some good news that I think is written all over Colossians and elsewhere. I said, Miguel, when I stand before God one day and he says to me, why are you going to come in into my kingdom? Why should I let you into my rest? Why should I let you into heaven? Why why you? I so said, I'm going to say this and only this because Christ died for me, and my sins are forgiven. Nothing else. Because as soon as I add to it, I can never add enough. Anything less than that, I'm still a sinner. The only way to be saved is through Christ, and through Christ alone. That's Paul's message in the whole book of Colossians, is Christ Alone. Not Christ plus circumcision. Not Christ plus the Sabbaths. Not Christ plus the law. Not Christ plus apple cider. Or not Christ plus only being married once. Or not Christ plus voting Republican. Or not Christ plus mowing my grass and having the nicest lawn on the block. Just Christ. Just Christ. But you have to have Christ, which is what Paul says in verse 22. Verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You have to continue in Christ. The Christian faith isn't a raised my hand at a revival faith. It isn't just a a walked an aisle once, or prayed a prayer once, or Sat outside with my counselor at the Commitment Night fire once, faith. Faith may begin in those moments, but it must not end in those moments. But we must continue stable and steadfast in the faith of Jesus Christ. We must continue trusting only in Him. And Paul's writing it to the Colossians. You can't desert Christ. You can't start with Christ and end with something else. You must start with Christ and end with Christ. The gospel is the same for you whether you have been a believer for three seconds or you have been a believer for your entire life. The gospel always remains constant. And here Paul writes, the hope of the gospel you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. One of the great encouragements to me is that it isn't just Paul who became a minister of this gospel but Paul trained Timothy and others and they became ministers of this Gospel. And they trained other ministers of this same Gospel. And those men trained other ministers of this same Gospel. And this same Gospel has been proclaimed in one way or another for 2,000 years. So the same Gospel which Paul preached in uh, in Rome, in the year 60 A.D., is the same, pre- the same gospel that your Paul preaches in New Lenox at Missio day Church in the year 2014. Isn't that an encouragement? The message is the same. And so may it be that the gospel was preached here by your Paul for many years in faithfulness. The same Christ proclaimed that this Paul proclaimed thousands of years ago. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, indeed you are supreme. Supreme over all creation, as its creator, as its sustainer, as its purpose. Supreme over your church, as the one who purchased the church. Supreme over the resurrection, as the one who accomplishes it. As the resurrection and the life. Supreme over all your people is the one who reconciled them to the Father. Supreme as the one who once was manifested in clouds, tabernacles, and temples, but now is with us in the flesh. Lord Jesus, you are supreme. You are the fullness of God and yet also the fullness of man. We give you our praise. We give it to you alone, not to the angels in your presence, but we give the praise to you and to the Father and to the Spirit. We pray that we would be spirit-indwelt people. You would send your Spirit to be with us. and We pray that you would be with us indeed until we hear from your Word again and gather once more. We pray in your name because you are worthy. Amen.